We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City. On June 4th, we are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest and then the final event the behind the bangs writing workshop i finally did it put it together put together this workshop because i wrote this book in many ways for younger me and younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught i wanted the gyms i wanted i wanted the knowledge i wanted the education that's what i would have wanted so i've decided i'm doing it and in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn 15 years in my 15 year career as a tv writer and author and blah 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 all the other things i've written there are six things that i always use and all of those are in this workshop so if you have an interest in writing sign up all the ticket links are live today click the show notes click my instagram we are coming to a city near you and there's going to be some meet and greets i'll sign some copies of books we'll give out more books and i have uh, some pieces of merch that i'm taking on the road and i'm gonna give them out at the shows Hello, hello, hello. Before we start the episode, I have to tell you, we have our next podcast live show on the books, on the calendar. I have been working on like five different projects in my, you know, in my work life, in my film and TV life. And so I have not had time to do another live show, but I got a bunch of messages um, over the past six months asking for one. So we finally have it. It's May 10th. It's in Los Angeles, but you can also buy a streaming ticket and you can watch it online for up to 24 hours after the live show. Uh, You just have to buy your ticket beforehand. At the live show, we have the Celebrity Book Club drinking bingo. I'm very excited for this one. Uh, We're really going to run the game this time. We have some incredible drag queens, some hilarious stand-up comedians. The last show was so dreamy. I, I have high expectations for this one. So get your ticket. It's in the show notes or go to my Instagram at Chelsea Devontes. The link is in there. May 10th. We'll see you there. And now let's dive into the episode. Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates female celebrity memoirs. I'm your host, Chelsea Devontes. I'm a TV writer, comedian, and filmmaker, and sometimes I'm in stuff too. Now, this week, we are book clubbing Minka Kelly's memoir, Tell Me Everything, is the title, and it was published today, hot off the presses, our hottest off the presses episode yet. I had an early copy of the book, so we're releasing this episode when the actual book drops. Now, you probably know Minka Kelly from her role in Friday Night Lights. She's also been in TV shows like Parenthood and Euphoria. The other day, I was re-watching 500 Days of Summer, and 
realize that she's the girl at the end of the movie. So she's Autumn, uh, which I never put it together until, you know, I was on my couch the other day. So I have been looking forward to this book all year because her early blurb said her book was going to talk about living in New Mexico, growing up with a single mom, trauma, and working in TV. Okay, what? All my favorite things. All my favorite things. I'm so excited to talk about this book. It's truly shocking in such a beautiful way. So let's dive in. I used to think with enough therapy, I would never have to feel insecure or intimidated or angry, any of these feelings ever again. It turns out those feelings will always come up. And what we have to do is better learn how to better respond to those feelings. So instead of hiding and making ourselves small or running away or any of the things you learned as a child, how to protect yourself, Instead, you learn how to advocate for yourself and prioritize your emotional well-being over managing someone else's feelings. Essentially, learn how to be a grown-up in your 40s. <laughs> Our guest today is a storyteller working with a team of cultural consultants to lead insights and impacts for brands seeking to become more inclusive and culturally fluent. She has published poetry, essays, and fiction in the LA Times and many other places. She's also the host of the wonderful Moonlight Writers Club podcast. Please welcome Molly Thornton. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. This is uh, such a special one. So um, I introduced all my guests with the story of how we first met. I know where we met, but do you remember how we met? No, I was like so curious to hear your version of this because... I don't remember like the day that we met. I just remember when we started becoming friends at work. And then you invited me to go to a West African dance class with you (laughs) at the farmer's market. Uh And I was like, okay, sure. And then we became friends. That is so funny. So we both worked at Harry's Roadhouse in Santa Fe. Uh, Molly was a host. I was a server. And, And that's important because my only glimpse of us of like when we became friends is that you left your post up front and like stood by me at one of the little computer stations. And like, we like had a moment, like, I don't know, probably like gossiping about whatever's happening at the restaurant. (laughs) And, and then like working with you is my favorite thing ever. And yeah, hot tip for those in Santa Fe, that, that West African dance class is still going at the farmer's market. It is one of the most fun things you can do. And then every time Molly was back, um, and I was back in Santa Fe, we would always hang out. Then crazily, I, I just can't believe this happened. When I was doing my semester abroad, abroad is in full quotations, you guys, but that's how it counted for, for my college. I went abroad to Chicago <laughs> and Molly had moved to Chicago. So we had this like crazy six months in Chicago together. And then we both live in LA now. Yeah, I mean, that's just wild. Yeah. So I asked you to do Minka's book because... First off, it's been a minute since I've had like a dear, dear friend on the podcast. Like I'm talking like everyone's, you know, lots of friends, but Molly's a friend who has like ripped a phone out of my hand before I could like drug text a man who wore sweatpants to a date. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm like, no, I should text. And like (laughs) Molly, (laughs) Molly and I have been friends since we, since our ages had a teen behind them. Um, Also, you grew up in New Mexico. We met in Santa Fe. You're a writer yourself. So you're just like so perfect for this book. Um, 
So my first question for you is just overall thought having read it. And also, oh my God, this was the best. Uh, we only had one copy. So I had made notes in the book and gave it to Molly and then Molly made notes in the book. And now I have both of our notes and I think it's maybe the most magical friendship thing you can do. Yeah. I had no idea I was going to get to read your notes version of the book, which I always see posted on your book club Instagram posts. So there were certain areas that I didn't need to mark because you had already written like OMG or like what the fuck. And I was just like, yep, that's, that's right. My favorite is like, I, I got the book back and I was like, you paging through the notes to like make the beat sheet for the podcast. And there was one place where I had written ew and in all caps, you had written idiot. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of that. I know it was, it was really, um, it was really sweet. Highly recommend sharing a book with your friend and making notes in it for a little two person book club. Okay. So kind of overall feeling having read the book, did you overall enjoy it? I did. Yeah. I felt like the the beginning and the end are a little rough. Yeah. So the end, like I enjoyed reading so much. And then I kind of had to remember that because it didn't like quite leave me where I wanted. Yes. But like yeah. through the bulk of it, I was completely immersed, totally into it. Could have read it forever. There's a few sections I really loved, which we will get to. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool, cool. Okay, so let's dive in. There's so much to get into. So the first chapter of the book, it starts with her working at a peep show just outside of Albuquerque, stripping and dancing behind the glass while she is still in high school. I want to read a piece from page three. I didn't have to shop for stripper costumes for this job. I have three or four of moms passed down to me from the time I was young, as if there's some kind of inheritance. Call it weird or disorienting nostalgia, but as I filled out, she loved having me dress up in her old getups. In some ways, they are my inheritance, the only source of power she has to share with me. My mother's looks and her ability to attract men are the only security she's ever known. Whether she meant to convey that particular message, it's the only one I've learned. This outfit is my favorite of hers. I've even taken her stage name, Frankie. And then later she says, now looking back, I just wish once in a while she'd complimented me on my resourcefulness, intelligence, or resilience. I'd like her to see me as someone with potential, but the only praise she gives me, the one she considers the highest compliment, you're so beautiful. If this is my only source of power, I'd better learn to use it. So that tells you a lot about the book. Her mom was a stripper and little vague about maybe other things she got into. And then Minka ends up doing the exact same thing when she's a teenager trying to earn money to move away from her abusive boyfriend who she lives with. We will get into all of that. You know, I read that she decided to start the book with the chapter she felt most shameful about, like most embarrassed to admit Mm. that she was a peep show dancer has brought her so much shame. She thought maybe she could never tell her story because she didn't want people to know about this. I think also she came up in a time like when Friday Night Lights came out, like it probably could have like ruined her career, you know, to be like, she was a peep show girl, you know, and now like we're all thankful. Thank God we're all moved past it. And like, I think just watching her mom in that lifestyle brought her shame. So basically her childhood is Her dad is a guitarist for Aerosmith. Unbelievable. (laughs) He and her mom have a thing. He's, they're already not together by the time she's pregnant. She says her mom had three abortions, already didn't want to have another one. And she makes a plan. Her mom makes a plan with her grandma, like Minka's grandma. They'll raise her together and she's going to keep this child. And then her grandma dies. 
Minka's mom's and she's left alone to raise this child with no resources, no childcare, nothing, which is like kind of like the heartbreaking catalyst of the whole thing. And her dad, Rick, guitarist for Aerosmith is like, I got to go play with Aerosmith. Goodbye. Her mom is like, all right, no problem. And because she's kind of dating other people and her mom becomes a stripper. Right. Because he's like, no way, please don't have this baby. Like, we can't do this. Yeah. And then her mom's like, I'll do it with you. We'll be fine. So he's like already gone. Yeah. And and like he's like in and out in the beginning, but mm-hmm. she already has a different boyfriend named David who will get to you. Like, it's whew, painful. Oh, her mom, like Minka could have had that stable childhood perhaps, but like yeah. but her grandma died. The thing I love about this book is that you love her mom, even though her mom is uh a really horrible mom. Like she, but you can, you can like feel all her struggles. So she starts with this one night, her mom brings her to the crazy horse. And she's like, I really want you to see my sketch. I have like a comedic sketch. I'm like really proud of. And Minka's four or five and all the other strippers are like, don't like, Mm -hmm. don't show her the strip show. She's like, this is my sketch and I'm proud of it. And I guess her mom would like in the middle of the strip show, would come in, like would barge in through the back door dressed as like a bag lady, like an unhoused woman and like have all these like bags on her and be like, give me money. And everyone would freak out. And then slowly she'd get on stage and start to strip. Yeah. And this was like her debut. (laughs) And it was her like, her like, she was so proud of it. But honestly, yes, yes, that is so fucking, that is so fucking funny. A bunch of dudes are watching a strip show and a homeless woman comes in to ruin their time. And then is one of the strippers like, that's very funny. I mean, horrible, but very funny. What, here's what I wanted to ask you about it though, is what do you think that Minka makes of it? Because I feel like she doesn't tell us. She doesn't tell us a lot. Yeah. She doesn't tell us a lot of, I feel like throughout the book of what she makes of it. It's so interesting because you wanted to hear like, I saw the side of my mom that like wanted to be an actor and was creative and wanted to be funny. And, but then she's also writing about how she has to get pulled away by another stripper before her mom strips on stage and how she's just a child watching a strip show. Like that part of it, not funny. Right. Um, Right. Because it's almost like, is this also a critique, right? Of like the idea that her whole job is to be objectified and be this certain definition of a woman. And I'm like, how deep is it? You know, I know, but it really does feel like the most beautiful art piece you've ever seen. Like, this is what, you know, you only want this kind of woman, but I barge in is this kind of woman. Yeah. But uh, yeah, she definitely doesn't tell us. She was just like, this is it. She just leaves it there. She just leaves it there. And you're like, okay, I mean, it's chapter two. And the chaos and poverty in her childhood is just at a level 10. There's her mom is uh, constantly, she's a drug user. She's an alcohol user, but it's like never quite clear. Like her addiction isn't, did, wasn't ever clear for me in the book. Was it clear for you? It's like hinted at, but like the process of like when she was trying to get clean or was, and that journey for her mom is not. Yeah. And I imagine it's because as a child, she didn't know what was going on, just kind of knew that drugs were a part of it. I mean, she would wake up in the morning and make herself breakfast as a first grader and then like go into her mom's room and try and wake her up to take her to school. And her mom would be so passed out. And then the weird man uh, beside her would like be like, I'll drive you to school. And she'd be like, okay, thank you. 
Yeah. One of the things that I wondered about it was it sort of seemed like her mom was making enough money just stripping that if she hadn't been buying drugs, they wouldn't have lived in a storage unit, which they do at the beginning. Yeah, I, yeah, but it's like, it's just so vague. But yeah, I I think, I think that's right. And like, so yeah, so they live in a storage unit. Then the woman who, the apartment complex owner is like, I need that storage unit. And they move into a garage. And her mom is like, isn't this great? We can like lift the garage during the day. I mean, it is so painful. She talks about how they would go grocery shopping like at four in the morning after one of her mom's shifts, which also kind of alludes to before you could spend that money on something else. Mm -hmm. And it, it was the other note I really laughed at Molly is that like, she talks about going to this, this Ralph's in Los Angeles that stays open all night and how it's like, kind of like a crazy place. And you, and you wrote, this is rock and roll Ralph's. It's like, it's definitely rock and roll Ralph's. For sure. Because she's saying, you know, it's a Ralph's where you can walk in, in all any state and it doesn't matter. So she's not worried about like how they're going to appear there buying like buckets of candy at 4am. Buckets of candy and hamburger helper. Yeah. Rock and roll Ralph's. Which is a Ralph's in Los Angeles that's, you know, infamous. And and also, like, oh, like, like I, I'm going to say, like, my favorite thing, but I don't mean it in, like, a, like, I mean, like, I just love, like, recognizing it, like, how you never know if when the, what, the number comes up at the grocery store, if you're going to have enough and mm-hmm. if you're going like, to have to put something back, uh, which is, like, you know, definitely a feeling, like, I have felt before. And then later in life, when she gets to the place where she's, like, I can buy whatever groceries I want and like how incredible that feels. And I feel like moments like those are rare in a celebrity memoir. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that struck me about the particular way she grows up in poverty that I feel like was the theme for me is the idea of like feast or famine Mm -hmm. because it's not like, you know, some people's experiences are just like, We never had anything. There was no luxury. It was just like we had rice and beans or we had nothing. Yeah. But the way that she lives and what she experiences in other people's households growing up too is like it's all or nothing. And because her mom is all about like fun and pleasure and delights. So it's not like, oh my gosh, I just got paid. Now we can pay the light bill and I'm going to get you stuff for sandwiches for school. It's like, we are going to get like every cookie that they have in the grocery store yeah, and like have a fun time. Which is also like, you know, just from my like narrow experience and like people I know, that's how I feel about poverty. Like I think when, and I, it's, I've especially talked about this a lot when I worked in late night news and like Fox news would like used to like run these things where they'd be like, these people on welfare have iPhones yes. and they're like so blown away. And it's like, man, people really do not know what poverty is like, because that's not what it is. Like you can have an iPhone because they're built with payment plans that are really right. meant for people who don't have credit to just stay on these plans forever what you don't have is opportunity or future or healthcare or safety. Yes. But like you can have like a fridge, which I remember Fox News used to be like a fridge. And you're like, what do you think poverty is, my dog? Like, yeah, some people don't have fridges, but like fridges, they exist and you can still be poor. She names that so beautifully when she first gets her own apartment and she says, I went to Rena Center, a place that specializes in people with no credit. Yeah. And it's like, Credit culture is for people who don't 
don't have credit yes. they're there to ruin your yeah yeah i i really really loved all the details about um how she grew up because i just feel like people still regard poverty in this weird way where like you could never have like a cute outfit on you know yes and so okay so then the other big character that enters her life is a guy named david who oh i like i i in the book i wrote no but like when she's four years old her mom gets into a relationship with David and David, she starts calling him dad. Mm-hmm. And so she's aware there's this other guy who's her real dad. But like when you when you're a child, like dad is dad and David becomes her dad. And David is <sighs> complicated, almost feels like too kind of a word. But the way she writes him, she writes him really like yeah. positively sometimes. So it was like really hard to navigate. I mean, it seems like at first, and the reason why she does call him dad is because when he first comes into her life, she even says that he's not involved in his own kid's life, but he just takes to her and decides like, I'm going to love this kid and I'm going to parent her. So I think when she's super young before everything else unfolds, at least she gives the impression that he was just kind of there and was loving to her. Yeah, and in many ways he was, which is, I guess, like the complications of abuse and trauma when, like, it's not just all bad, you know? But yeah. But also, like, she was so young. It's like they also, like, her mom and David participated in getting her to call him dad. Like, I highly For doubt sure. one day it was like, daddy, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, maybe, but I don't know. Uh, and then she wrote this, which I love. She said, Psychologists have long believed that humans are more likely to remember negative experiences over positive ones. This impulse, some argue, has evolutionary roots because it's more important for our survival to notice the lion in the undergrowth than the beautiful birds chirping in the trees. The fact that our youngest years tend to focus more on fraught memories is also due to evolution. Younger people, because they have a long and vague future in front of them, need to collect a lot of information. And so they remember ample details about negative experiences to help manage their unclear futures. I have no doubt there were times when my mother and I wrapped ourselves in joy and love that I giggled with Rick and delighted in some small pleasure he showed me, that there were times when my adoration of David filled me with security and peace. But like those missing puzzle pieces, I can't fully see those moments. It's just the red barn again and again, that pond, those same damn threatening clouds. I think it's one of my favorite passages in the whole book. Yeah. I was like, what book did you get this from? Because sounds good. But I'm like, where's the, what is this science? Uh, you're right. Because I just took it. I was like, this is science. I yeah. believe it. This is science. <laughs> like, there's not a, a footnote or anything, but it really does feel true. <laughs> it's interesting, though, also that she says that there because... In a lot of ways, she does then go on to do the opposite and tell us, like, here's all the times I felt really good with these people who didn't necessarily deserve it. That's so interesting. I think I feel like it's the same impulse where all you really have are these horrible things. and But then you also mm-hmm. know a later version of someone or you're an adult now, so you know there's love there. And so then you feel bad. So then you're trying to put the nice things in. And then trying to write why all the bad things are in there. Sometimes I've talked about like having fully processed stuff before you write the memoir. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I feel like Minka did this at the exact right time. And that like, if she would, were to write this book again in 10 years, it's going to be totally different. I agree. What do you do? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, There's some stuff where you're like, "Mm." yes. Like I think that she was, 
it was the right time in that she is close enough to having process to like have the details and have a clear view of it. But where she left us at the end gave me questions about yes where she's at. Yes. Okay. Yes. I completely agree. Okay. So back into where we were, there's a lot. So kind of a big overview is that she's like passed around it to like when I say pass around, it's just like, she just doesn't know where they're going to live or be. They live with David for a while. There's a lot of like drugs and alcohol and partying abuse. David is extremely violent towards her mom. She only writes a singular encounter, but it's like so violent that you know that that's pervasive. Then her mom, who had always wanted to be a model and an actress, books, I couldn't quite what was it? She booked a role in the Philippines where she's like a lingerie girl, but also it was like an acting job? I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. She went to the Philippines for work and she was really happy that she got picked. Yeah. That's and she was like, I've her. been picked as yeah. the like, most beautiful girl to do this thing. Yeah. Well, so the job in the Philippines is for three months. And she's like, Minka, you're going to live with my friends. This woman Minka's never met. I'll be back in three months, but I have to go do this job. She lives with this woman who Again, another thing I love, she's like, it was so stable. She picked us up and dropped us off. She had a daughter who I love. She made us meals. And then one day she comes home early and realizes that the woman is a sex worker and like does all her work while the kids are at school, but then provides this like really stable life. And then three months pass and the woman can't keep her for some reason. But she's like, she buys Minka sneakers. She buys her a duffel bag so she doesn't have to carry a garbage bag around. Mm -hmm. And her mom finds her like a new friend to live with. And she's just passed to different people to live with. Her mom does not come home for a year. Mm -hmm. The job was six weeks. Six weeks. I thought it was three months. Oh my God. And then she's been at the place for two months. I think at first her mom is like, She's hearing from her and she's like, it's going to be another month or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then at a certain point, it's just like she's overstayed her welcome everywhere. She's so ashamed because she feels like it's her fault and she's a burden on all these people. And yeah. she doesn't know who any of them are or why she's staying with them. Yeah. This is another one where she just gives us what it is. And the facts alone are enough to know that this is like one of the most devastating, horrific things that could ever happen yeah. to a child or a human being. But she also just kind of leaves it there for you. And David pops in on her from time to time. Yeah, to check. But for some reason, David can't be parenting her during this time. And David, for her, is dad. My dad checks on me, but I'm living with a random woman. I mean, the next random woman she goes to live with has these two daughters who, like, beat her ass every night. And they, like, fight. And it's, like, horrifying. Yeah. The one little insight I feel like she gave us was on page 61. She said, Every morning, I walk to the bus stop on my way to school, passing a convenience store, not quite a 7-Eleven, just one of the liquor stores that dotted the neighborhood. Once a week or so, I went into the store to buy a Coke or to have a look around. When the clerk wasn't watching, I crept to the candy aisle, dumped an entire box of Jolly Ranchers into my backpack. I knew how to be sneaky and quiet, how to not take up space and make myself small so no one would notice me. I grabbed a Coca-Cola from the fridge and paid for the drink or told the clerk I hadn't found what I was looking for, but thank you, walking out with sticks of candy. Once I got to school, I peddled the candy to classmates for a quarter each. Apple and watermelon were the favorites. Soon I became known as the girl with the candy more than Minka Stinka. That eased my way into making friends along with the new purple swoosh Nikes that the woman had bought her. I was going to ask if we could go back to this because it's so smart because, right, she's like getting bullied at the school. And then before that, she also says, 
One drawback of this living situation was that Mo, her mom, hadn't set up an account with the school cafeteria and hadn't left lunch money for me. And she won't ask the woman she's staying with for more money because she feels so bad. So she literally comes up with this hustle to make her own money and buy herself the things she needs. You sometimes get these glimpses of like, who she is and like, I mean, that's such a brilliant little painful plan. Yeah. And then she finds out later that part of the reason why her mom was gone for so long is that she was transporting drugs for David, her dad, and went to jail for a few months in the Philippines. Can't imagine that. Or maybe not in the Philippines. I don't know. She went to jail somewhere. Yeah, I didn't get that. And she sounds like she maybe didn't even know that until she was an adult. Yeah. Like, yeah, that seems right. And then there's a whole section that it's just too much to go into, but her mom has this best friend, Claudia, who's always helping them, always helping them get off their feet. But her mom, Mo, keeps ruining it. Like Claudia would say, like, please do your dishes, for instance. And then her mom just wouldn't for weeks. And Claudia would just all these things happen back and forth. And Mo sounds awful. And Claudia sounds like she's really trying to be a good friend for her and Mika, but like finally draws a boundary. And they have like when her mom finally comes back, they move in with Claudia. And then her mom, again, it feels like it's from drugs, but we don't know. And then yeah. like, Claudia kicks them out. And they go where, Molly? To New Mexico. Albuquerque, New Mexico. <laughs> so David's family, like his parents and cousins and, and siblings um, and, and an ex-wife all live in Albuquerque in this big house. Ex-wife is there too. And Minka and her mom, who she's been off and on with David, moved to Albuquerque and it becomes one of the more stable places. And like, basically it's a stable place to live. And that's a lot. And that his parents, her grandparents are like the nicest, kindest, loveliest people. Right. And there's so many adults there that it doesn't matter as much that her mom isn't parenting her because she like always has someone to go to. Yeah. And she now has like cousins that are like her cousins who can like stand up for her at school. And it's funny, you and I both made a bunch of notes around this section. So, oh, I don't think we've said this. That whole first childhood is is Los Angeles. Yes. Where she meets the Aerosmith guy. Okay. So then they move from Los Angeles to New Mexico. And she said, if I thought I stuck out in Los Angeles, that was nothing to what I faced there. The school was a part of an exurb of of Albuquerque made up of entirely of Mexicans and Native Americans. I'd gotten so used to blending in with my large extended family, I thought I could blend in at school as seamlessly as I melded at home. I didn't realize how out of place I appeared, a little blonde girl from LA. And then she uses David's last name, Gonzalez, as She's like instinctively when people ask me my last name, I say it as protection. So she had a, like kind of like a cousin, Yaz, who she's very rudely writes as a tad overweight. I'm like, yeah, why do we got to do that? You love Taz. She's about to protect you. Yeah. <laughs> What's going I know, on? I wrote that in there. Like, yeah. No, I thought you write rude. It's not like everyone even gets a physical description. And then she's like, that is what kills me. And I've yelled about this on the podcast before where it's like the whole book will go by and they'll be like, and then this black woman came out to me. You're like, this is the only black person in the whole book. Are you out of your mind? Like you didn't write when everyone was white. And like, this is another way of doing that. This is the same as like the whole David thing, which I wrote like left and right. She like wants to tell us a lot about David's ethnicity and how he identifies, which has no relation to the story. There's never like a time that that becomes like 
pertinent to what's occurring. But she really wants us to know that, like, his family says that they are Mexican, but not indigenous, and that he feels strongly that he's an indigenous person. And he tells people that he, like, he'll say, I'm Native American. And Minka is like, he's not, and then his mom says he's not. Yeah. It was so tough because, and this is, like, where you and I, like, make all these notes. We'll we'll get to it, but she starts doing a very New Mexican look for that year, which is, like, a lot of Aquanet and, like, hair gel and, like, black eyeliner and blah, blah, blah. She, She writes, my mom hated when I did my hair this way. She wanted me to have a more natural look, but she did share her secret of using sun in to lighten my hair. By this time, I'd leaned into the blondie name. Oh boy. And was proud to be a different kind of Mexican, a unique one, a blonde one. After all, I had cousins who were redheaded Mexicans. Why not blonde? We come in all colors and sizes. It, I just felt like we were so close. We were so close. Like, I, I do think, especially in America, people don't realize that uh, being Latino is not a race. <laughs> like, I think people do not realize that. And they are like, they think of it as like all one thing where you don't right. realize like you can be like, white Latino, you can be white Mexican, you can be white Hispanic, you can be indigenous. So I just feel like people don't understand that concept here. Do you feel the same? Yes. And also like just because your last name is Gonzalez now does not mean that you are Mexican. Yes. That was so weirdly written. I could not understand that. I was like, wait, why are we saying we? She definitely talks about like you can't take the Albuquerque out of the girl. When she talks about her New Mexico accent. Very, okay, yeah, okay, so this is the part I want to read. She said, initially, I tried to deflect or erase my history. I don't know what you mean. It's an American accent. That was my earlier response. But now I explain where I grew up and that my accent might be a remnant from my previous life in Albuquerque. When I was younger, I spent so many years trying to hide who I was, ashamed of my experiences, trying to sugarcoat my backstory. But I'm proud of the culture in which I was raised. It's a relief to be free of the shame I carried for so long. And then she said, now I see the good from this epoch firmly rooted in Mexican culture and this family who raised me as their own. I identify deeply with and celebrate the family centric ethos, the way I was raised to have manners, loyalty and respect for my elders and the food. There's no flavor quite like those found in Albuquerque. The only place you'll get that hatched chili taste. Even at McDonald's, the number one question is always red or green chili. No race or ethnicity is a monolith. This is not to essentialize Mexican culture, but only to share what became an important part of my character. I thought that was a better way to say some of these things. Yes. Um, and I do think the message that Hispanic people can be blonde should be out there in the world because absolutely, I don't understand why that's still shocking people. So I'm glad that she included that in their book. And I, I actually really feel for having your identity messed with when you're literally in the middle of way worse traumas. Like, why would you stop down to be like, what is what is identity when like at school she's like getting into fights so bad that like one of the girls or her will go to jail? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, it's a lot. It is a lot. I loved her writing about fighting in high school because it's something that you that gets so much judgment and it's it's horrible. It's violence. But um, where I went to high school, you if you didn't fight, you uh, you you really um, suffered for it. Like you it it was respect. It was belonging. It was decency. And like when you go to a place where fight culture is like necessary for survival, it's especially when you're a young kid and like her mom's not even around, she like falls into these and she describes these like full on brawls she has to do at school in order to not get her ass kicked every day, which I, I, I enjoyed that. Would it, I, was it like that at your high school? 
I definitely went to at least one school where fighting was a thing. I never had to become a fighter. I don't, Molly, I don't even know if you know this part of me, but you knew, you know, I threw down, right? Yes. It is something that uh, <laughs> took a lot of therapy to get out. It's so funny to be like a nice professional lady and to have this history. So I just really feel, I just really feel for Minka who like, I really feel for the part where you like try and hide all of this shit, you know? Yes. <laughs> okay. And then she gets a best friend named Angel and she writes this about her. Having one person who loves me unconditionally, who accepted me with all my quirks and who wanted me to be the best version of myself was nothing short of transformational. And then she writes later, she was glad for my company too. Her mom was going through a divorce and we were able to distract each other from whatever stress home life had to offer and to share the burdens we each carried. Together, we felt accepted and at peace. We spent hours together, never tired of each other's company. I hadn't known that a friend could make such a difference. I definitely cried here because I had a high yeah. school friend who came into my life and changed my whole life just, just by being a friend. And um, then we get into the photo section with Angel. I'm going to nominate this for the best photo section of any celebrity memoir ever. <laughs> what did you think of these photos? Yeah, I mean, just like the, seeing the photos of her and Angel and her in high school and her New Mexico look are just like so healing to me. Anyone from or who has spent time like myself in New Mexico, when you see these photos, it'll be the best things you've it'll be the best thing you've ever seen. Anyone not from New Mexico is gonna be shook that Minka used to dress like this. Yeah, and the like crispy hair. And she talks about, like, how hard she worked to, like, crunch her hair into, like, the perfect texture. It's that that was the hair. Um, so then, horrible, horrible, horrible. She gets an older boyfriend named Rudy. And Angel is like, watch out for that guy. Like, he fucking sucks. And Rudy, of course, is like, stop hanging out with Angel. She's trash for you. He brings a divide between her and her only fucking friend. And then she writes this. She says, Juana looked somber and nervous as she bent her head to whisper to me, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but my dad's a private investigator and your dad's about to be in a lot of trouble. I didn't know what to say. I always knew David was usually up to something a little shady. There must be a reason he never had a driver's license, why we never went to the doctor for a checkup and why the utilities were in my name. But I wasn't sure... Uh, I wasn't sure what was what. Once when a friend gave me a ride home from school, she was shocked when we arrived at my house. Why, I asked. That's where my brother gets his drugs, she told me. I shrugged it off. So she goes home and she's like, I should pass on this information that a private investigator says, like, they're coming for you. Within 12 hours, the house is packed and they're like, we're moving. And Minka doesn't want to move again. She's moved too much. She loves Angel. She loves Rudy. And she goes and hides at Rudy's house where Rudy's dad tells her mom, like, she's not here, just leave. And she writes this, I don't know exactly where, when, and how, but mom met with Tomas, who is her boyfriend's dad, who's Rudy's dad, in an attorney's office in Albuquerque and signed my custody over to a man she didn't know, no questions asked. She and David left town two days later. Yeah, the end of this, I wrote down, she says, they left me, I asked for it. Yes, but really, I just wanted them to stay and care for me here where I had a home. I had hoped they'd change their minds. They didn't. I was 16. Yeah. And the way she waffles in that is like what gets me where it's like she still starts saying like, they left me. I asked for it. I have a very painful relationship with this, too. I, th I think you do, too, of like 
Yeah, like at 16, I did ask for some fucked up things and it's tough that they were said yes to, you know? And you do feel like it's your fault because at 16, you feel like you're an adult and you're not. And she was treated like one. And because she was a child, like, I mean, she had, she wanted to make the right choice. Like that's part of the thing is that no choices are ever made for her best interest. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and the fact that like, it's interesting because it's like, you're a child, like this shouldn't be your fault. But the truth is that like, no one was in charge of her life, but her since she was four. Right. So of course you're going to like feel that way. Yeah. That was something I wanted to say about all of the parents and adults too. And like, there's a scene where she tries out calling the mom's friend, Claudia. She starts, she calls her mom. Yeah. And Claudia's like, don't say that, like, that's only for your mom. But you just see how, because no one is parenting her, she's looking for someone to attach to as a parent in every adult that's in her life. And I think by this point, she's just given that up. And she writes, I saw parents as interchangeable. Yes. And I mean, I completely get how she ends up here. Also, her mom, it's not written about enough, but her mom is being intensely abused by David to what extent we don't know she's so I mean it's it's just hard to know and then but what's unbearable is that her custody is signed over to her boyfriend's dad her boyfriend is also abusive he's the one that gets her to start dancing at the peep show and he's the one that makes her stop being friends with Angel and she starts like hiding money from the peep show from him to eventually get away from him because this is how this relationship ends. He made her get a tattoo for him to feel like he had claimed her. And so she has him put the tattoo like under her pubic hair. So she was like, oh, it can grow over and cover it up. And she said, little did I know I'd spend the rest of my life explaining to new lovers what the mark was, lying to everyone. It was just some silly thing a girlfriend and I decided to do together. I was too ashamed to admit the truth that at 17, I'd been so dependent on a man, I'd let him brand me as if I was a member of the Nexium cult. And then she comes home one day and she says, I picked at my cuticles while Nina and Rudy started making out. So she comes home, Nina's there, Rudy's like, we should have sex with Nina, right? I just sat there on the bed pretending I was anywhere else. Soon they'd stripped off their clothes and were having sex right in front of me. I remained next to them, fully dressed. They'd forgotten all about me. I felt sick and excused myself to sleep on the couch so they could finish. Before the sun came up in the morning, I gathered my clothes and called Angel, hoping she'd forgive me. She picked me and my bag of clothes up immediately. And um, it like takes a few times and she goes back and forth, but she says her whole life changes when she finally gets her own apartment. I love this section. Me too. And the other thing that, so it's one is she gets her own apartment and Rudy's dad, Tomas, is like, if you get the money for first and last, I will co-sign for you because that's what you have to have. And he's like, you have to get away from my son. He's a major hero in this Major hero in the book, yeah. And and then she says she never told Tomas about the peep show work she was doing. She said we had a kind of don't ask, don't tell policy, but I was determined to make him proud. I mean, like, Oh, oh my God. It's like so beautiful and so painful. And um, at the exact same time, her dad, Rick, her biological dad, sends her a packet, like a letter, and is like, when you're ready to leave New Mexico, let me know. She's like, cool, thanks. And gets her own apartment. She starts working in customer service for T-Mobile. And it was just so beautiful. She was like, oh my God, I finally had like a life. I had my own desk in a cubicle 
pens, pencils, pencil sharpeners, highlighters. I felt good and wholesome and career focused. The building where I worked was beautiful and new, everything modern, not all dusty and falling apart like so much of my life had been. At lunch, I sat with the girls in the break room talking about our customers and our lives. Sometimes we'd go out to Dion's for pizza at lunchtime and I'd dip my slice in ranch dressing and join this new reality. Yes, Dion. I know. I saw you write like Dion's. <laughs> we would, that, it was a big deal when Dion's opened in Santa Fe and we would go there all the time. Yeah. I love that set that passage and I related to this section so much because I that's how I felt when I had my first job where I had a cubicle in yeah. my mid-20s I was like I made it yes then that's what she writes too she's like I fucking made it like yeah little cubicle I have a little apartment all her furniture is from the, that like rent a place for people with no credit yeah it's really great Okay, we're going to take a quick break right now, and we'll be right back. Sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life. And I can't believe it, but I got to write my own. And it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains, but you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role, and we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book, it matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. So I want to take a minute to tell you about a podcast that I love and listen to, and I think you might love it as well. Maybe you already know about it. It is called The Deep Dive with Jessica St. Clair and June Diane Raphael. June has been a guest on our podcast. She did the Tori Spelling episode, which uh, one of my favorites. And they do a podcast where they unpack life about 
surviving adult womanhood. They dig into their real lives. They discuss a wide range of topics like how to pursue joy amidst the insanity of motherhood and family, grief and loss, the shit they put on their faces. They did a whole series on like getting your nails done and why they refuse to check their voicemails or unpack their suitcases. They've had a ton of great guests like Julia Louise Dreyfus, who discussed the best snacks to keep in your home, to keep your children around forever. Casey Wilson, who gave them a masterclass in the art of small talk, which I listened to that episode, I loved. And uh, writer, comedian, me, Chelsea Devantes, who they said, enlighten them on how to wield the power of a bold red lip. Yes, thank you, my gift in the world. But also June and I had, uh, at least it was incredible for me, a conversation about uh, like body image and how to deal with it in this wild, wild world. When you listen to the deep dive, you're gonna feel like you're catching up with your best friends. You can listen to it wherever you get your podcast. So if you are looking for a podcast, check them out. I want to take a second to shout out some of our amazing podcast partners who have been gifting some incredible products to me and my guests to create the perfect cocktail and general book vibe to just, you know, curl up with a good or bad memoir and have a real time. Tenteo Tequila, Natalie's Juice, Paquetto Gear, Yield, and PF Candle. I Love these products. So Tenteo Tequila, you know, it's where I get my favorite alcohol. Natalie's Juice mixes with them to create a great cocktail. My favorite is Blood Orange. Paquetto has so many products. They have these really cute little pins that I make book notes with. They have tiny little spoons that I use in my tea, and I'm really obsessed with the tiny spoon. I I don't know why. It just changes the whole tea experience. Gear and Yield have beautiful home products and cups to put this all in, and PF Candle because... Listen, what is a vibe without a candle? You know what I mean? You got to light a candle to have a vibe. I'm obsessed with these brands and their products. Go to my Instagram. You'll see my haul of my favorite products and specific things from these brands. So thank you, podcast partners. Okay, let's dive back into the episode. And so then she's like ready to take Rick up on a trip to Los Angeles to kind of spend time with her biological father kind of for the first time. And she decides to move out and that he takes her to a restaurant and she's trying to order. And she says, do you have iceberg and ranch? I asked the waiter. Sorry, no. Okay, do you have spaghetti then? No, we don't have spaghetti. Rick interrupted. Give us a minute, please. We'll look at the menu. The waiter went away and the horrified and embarrassed look on Rick's face made me ashamed. This was his special spot, the place where he was known by his first name, and they brought him his favorite latte without him even having to ask. And here I was with my long airbrushed acrylic nails, heavily made up face, and talking with a thick Albuquerque accent decked out in clothes that couldn't be further from the West Hollywood vibe. My favorite movie at the time was Mi Vida Loca, which takes place in Echo Park, pronounced in the movie as Echo Parque. (laughs) Now that was, I know, it's very, that is also like the perfect Albuquerque accent. Now that was where I might've fit in, but in West Hollywood, I was an extraterrestrial. Seeing the mortification on Rick's face, something came over me. I don't know where the words came from, but I let him have it. Listen, I said, calmly squaring my shoulders. If you'd been in my life the last 18 years, I'd be the girl you want me to be. Just give me a minute, okay? To this day, he loves to tell that story. I think it was the moment I earned his respect. I said, ew! I know, I hate that. Ew, bitch! the takeaway of that because those words are so powerful and accurate. I mean, first off, we're putting down Iceberg and Ranch, a phenomenal salad, spaghetti, a key meal. Fuck you, Rick. Then we're putting down everything Albuquerque in New Mexico and like acrylic nails and makeup. Fuck you, Rick. Then she's like, 
give me a second. I will change into the type of woman you want me to be. And he was like, that's awesome. Now I can love you, my daughter, again. Unbearable. Yeah. And he really, this is not unique to Rick, but he really gets that shine that comes from being the parent who was never around and just (laughs) comes in for like a fun time. Because like she's saying, like you keep these negative memories, but when the negative memory of someone is like what they didn't do, that doesn't register in the same way. So you're just like, oh my (laughs) gosh, every time I see you, we have such a fun time together. You're a pretty good guy. Yeah, that that's such a good point. And like, she will note things where Rick wasn't great, but he's way more not great than she includes. And like, but after that, she, (laughs) she goes home. She like gets everything together, moves out to Los Angeles. And Rick is like, come stay with me and Robin, who's his British wife. Mika starts having this like beautiful life that include things like leaving the light on when she comes home. Um, having um, a hot water bottle on a chilly night, which is like, so I have a friend, Anna Rose, and when I went to visit her in London, she made one of those like hot water bottles that you sleep with. And I was like, this is the best thing I've ever experienced in my life. Have you ever had one? Yes. They're dreamy. It's yes. so weird, but like they're very dreamy. And his wife being British made one for her. And she was like, this is love. Yeah. This is care. She gets a job working customer service again. And then her dad's like, you have a month you have one month in Los Angeles to earn enough at a minimum wage job to move out and get your own apartment in Los Angeles, having just moved here at 19 years old. And I, you've never spent any time with me. She gets three extra months. So four months. And at four months, he's like, get the fuck out. Okay. Not only that, she's immediately starts working this job at AT AT&T, 5 a.m. to 1 p.m. She has community service she has to do for, like, a fight fight that she got in trouble for in New Mexico. And because she's not making enough, she's already started getting a second job at Guess that she works in the evenings until after close, setting up the store. She's sleeping, like, four hours a night. She's getting sick because of it. And he tells her after a couple months of Me this. and my wife need our house back. Yeah. Boo, Rick. Boo. Like, it, ugh. And I, I will say, like, again, the person who comes in and helps her is this girl named Marie at Guess, who's like, do you have retail experience? She's like, no, just like, I just moved from New Mexico. I swear to God, like, I'll work hard. And Marie hires her and she says, she became my best friend teaching me how to navigate life in Hollywood, correcting me when I did something stupid. To this day, I still hear her voice when I'm about to do something reckless. Minka, you can't do that. That's not okay. Um, Which I have to say, I also loved because when I moved to New York from New Mexico, I had good or bad people constantly being like, what what are we doing here? You know, and you're like, where she was just kind of like helped her like fit into the city. And she said she was like one of the most, again, one of the most transformative formational forces in her life was just having Marie as a friend. Yeah. Yeah. After Rick kicks her out and she goes into work, also Rick tells her, you'll thank me for this later. Fuck you, Rick. Marie is like, forget all your other jobs. You can work full-time here. Come with me. We'll find a unit for you in my building. Yeah. And then I will also say like Marie being a better dad than Rick, you know, best friendship for the win, but also fuck you, Rick. She uh, starts, gets another job, 
uh, where she can make more money and she's answering phones at a plastic surgery clinic. And one of the women there is like, who literally is like the secretary at the plastic surgery clinic is like, I'm a, I'm a model. I'm a manager for models <laughs> and I should manage you. And Minka's like, sure. Like I need money. You got it. And she's like, great. I have scheduled you for a breast augmentation. I was so horrified. I blocked oh, it. It was liposuction. Yeah. Br- liposuction and breast augmentation. And she's like, and then you'll pay it off with modeling jobs later. And Minka's like, again, just having no parentage in her life is like, okay. And then she goes to Marie and she's like, hey, I'm, I, uh, I need someone to drive me home from the plastic surgery my yeah. manager has set up for me. She says, Marie stood up and slammed her hand on the table, making our bowls of ramen jump. Are you fucking kidding me? You have the most gorgeous figure in the world. Why would you ever consider letting that man take a knife to you? She says, I need a boob job. Minka, no. And she says, I will not be a part of you wrecking your body. No way. Reinforced by Marie's words, I told Tina I needed to cancel the surgeries the next day at work. Marie was the one person who always had my best interests at heart. I trusted her and I knew she was right. You'll never be playmate of the year without a boob job, Tina scolded, clearly unhappy with my choice. And then Tina gets her fired. Yep. Believable. And then, okay, because we're in the modeling section. Then- her mom's kind of come back in her life. She's like back in LA. Her mom has a n- friend named Kim. And Kim sees Minka grown up at 18. And she's like, you are so beautiful. I will pay your rent for a year if you pursue modeling. Yeah, because yeah. Kim is married to the man who started the like real dolls sex doll brand and was one of the models for it. And so now she's just really rich. Yeah. And she's like, (laughs) I will sponsor you in being a model as you obviously should be. And Minka thinks about it. She's like, I don't want this. And having worked at the plastic surgery office, realized, because she could see with her own eyes, that she wanted to become a scrub nurse. And she's, like, not, she just says, like, blood and surgery, like, is only, like, fascinating and beautiful to her. Like, she doesn't, she doesn't get gross out at all. So she writes Kim a letter when she gets enough courage, and she's like, thank you so much for that offer. Could you please do that if I don't become a model, but I go to school to become a nurse? Like, please, 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 please. And Kim's like, ugh. I can't believe you're not going to be a model, but yes, I will do this so that you can become a nurse, which is like, (laughs) it's kind of incredible. It is. And again, she really underplays herself here because she's like, by the way, I had already gone through like all the hoops. I got a ton of financial aid. So the only thing I needed was someone to cover my rent. Yes. And yeah. And also like, She's she becomes she's so good at this job. Yeah. And it's like such a skill. And it's also like, God, I I really do. I didn't realize it till talking with you, Molly, but I'm like, this this book is like should should help teach poverty to people who don't know what it is, where it's like it always takes one piece of help. A person coming in to co-sign the apartment so you can get out of the abusive relationship. Or Kim like paying for the rent, where like where like it could be government programs. Like if we had a government program offering just like an inch of help, people can like lift themselves out of situations, but you, she can't do it without these pe- these like miracles, you yeah. know? Yeah. And um, then she wrote, the biggest preparation for becoming a scrub nurse came long before nursing school. From the time I could walk, I studied my mom for signs of drug use or irritability, guessing at what I needed to do to disarm the moment before she blew up. Same with David, Rudy, and Rick. It's no surprise I excelled at this work because as a scrub nurse, your whole job is to anticipate the surgeon's needs and hand them and do whatever they think they need. Yeah. 
wild. Okay. <laughs> Can you believe there's like still more to go? I know. I love this section so much because I'm not like an actor or a musician. I like don't fully relate to ones where they're just like, I always wanted to be in showbiz. That's my whole thing. Yeah. So I just really love that she's like, there's this whole other ambition that I have in this career that I think is really amazing. Yeah. That's a really good point. And I, as someone who unfortunately did always want to be in the entertainment business, I love book. I, most memoirs skip the gritty, detailed, messy part between moving here and having any job whatsoever. She includes all of them, which is amazing. However, the next move in her life is she is sitting on a street side cafe with her mom in Beverly Hills. And a woman walks up to her and says, hey, you there, you should be a model. I can't believe how true this is. I cannot believe the amount of memoirs that I've read where someone walking up to you on the street and is like, you should be famous literally works out. It's honestly maybe the only route. Like you just got to walk around and let someone come up to you. Yeah. It was Jackie Salem of Elite Models. Not only does she do that, but she goes in for the meeting and she's like, okay, you're gorgeous. You just need to lose 15 pounds and you're gonna be a model. Minka's like, no. She's She's like, like, you asked me to come here. Yeah. She's like, I'm sorry. You walked up to me. Yeah. The woman's like, wait, you're not gonna lose 15 pounds. Minka's like, no, I'm not. No, no. And like, I don't even want to fucking be a model. Bye. (laughs) And she's like, wait, 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 wait. I'll still side you. And she's like, but do I have to lose 15 pounds? She's like, no, fine. And, um, and then starts giving her auditions. She does not give a fuck about. And then she starts booking them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. And for, and for anyone who's ever really tried at this career, mm, very painful to read. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Where you're just like the amount of, the amount of effort. And, um, yeah. I don't begrudge her. I don't be, I really want a happy ending for her. It's just so funny to read any story that does not include the destructive efforts one does to make it to no avail. And then someone approaches you on a bench and it works. I know it's painful too, because it just kind of reinforces like, because that idea that it's like not wanting it. Yeah. Is like yeah, what is, makes it easier makes it, to get. Yes. Yes, which is unbearable as an answer, Molly. Yeah, it's an unbearable answer. You just have to be above it. You're like, okay, cool. <laughs> Never gonna happen. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Um. So then this next part kind of goes by somewhat fast, and I think it's she starts dating a guy named Sean. They're together like five years. She says it's a good relationship. Her mom is in and out of her life until finally her mom is like, I should move in with you and Sean. And Mika says yes, and her mom becomes really destructive again. It seems like it does have to do with drugs and um, alcohol and like paying rent and and kind of messing up her life with Sean. And she goes to Rick for advice. And Rick is like, you have to kick your mom out and you can't give her money. And she does it. And she and her mom are estranged from that moment on. She then goes to an acting class. Oh God. I know. She goes to an acting class per the modeling agency being like, do an acting class so you can like get commercials. And she like does this exercise. Um, that ugh, I'm sorry, it like brought me back to my acting class stuff. Yeah. And the teacher is like, you know, breaking down her walls. Why are you not being honest and truthful and living in the moment? And and the teacher says, God, in front of everyone, she's like, what are you doing? Why are you talking like that? Why are you like being flirtatious with your scene partner? You know, you're manipulating him. Yeah, you're manipulating him. Why aren't you just being honest and real? And Minka just doesn't even know what she's doing. Like she's just grown up her whole life to communicate in certain ways. 
I started to cry. The entire class was staring at me, tears running down my face. Janet's voice, the acting teacher, softened a bit, probing, were you abused as a child? Oh, Oh, Janet. Did she really want me to answer that here now? People were staring. I couldn't see them over the lights, but I could feel their eyes. I'd always been a magician with my ability to make myself invisible. How come I couldn't do it now? And then she goes back through all the times she was abused in her head. But I will say this. She said, despite my tears, I was happy, ecstatic even. I had been seen maybe for the first time ever. Janet had seen through all my defenses and located the real me hiding inside. Her attention felt good and nurturing, like she really cared about me, who I was and who I had the potential to be. In the heat of her attention, I'd felt stripped bare and far too exposed, but I also felt that maybe I could finally relax. Maybe I could just be me, whoever that was. All I knew in that moment is that I would follow this woman until I learned all she had to teach me. It, it is such a beautiful revelation for her and maybe like an exact textbook of why cults work. Yeah. Well, why and why improv becomes such a cult and why acting classes become such a cult because it's like, and also like Jane Fond and Sally Field both write about these acting classes where it could be the first time they've ever had therapy, but instead it's an acting class of accessing mm-hmm. emotions and feeling yourself. And it, it, they have so much to work through that it feels so great that they act, continue yeah. acting, you know? I find it so, so, so painful having, yeah. like, experienced my own phase of, like, she says during this time that she's in this mindset of if something didn't hurt, it wasn't worthwhile. So she's like, yes, I'll just keep diving into, like, whatever is most painful for me. But I feel like when you have the, like, defense that she has, when you have such a coping mechanism of being strong, it's like going towards the pain in that way is not actually healing. You're actually, like, doing what you already are really good at. That's such, that is so well said. And also, like, you you really do need professional help. Like, and you know what I mean? Like, I'm not sure Janet <laughs> was the best captain yeah. of Minka's healing. And she even writes down the page, she says, while I don't believe in using acting as therapy, I can see how discovering who I was and learning to stop hiding behind the mask I acquired to survive was definitely an introduction into self-awareness, which also is the beautiful part of the arts, like why the arts should be in schools, because they can introduce you into like this beautiful part of yourself. I'm I'm not mad at Janet. I'm just sad that she didn't have anything else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe I'm a little mad at Janet. Don't ask someone if you were abused as a child. Come on. That's so traumatizing if you're not ready for that. I get the impression that this is like very normal for acting classes. Yes. Okay. Then Minka gets offered an audition for Friday Night Lights, the feature film being turned into a television show. And she says yes to it because Sean, her boyfriend's favorite movie is Friday Night Lights. And she's like, this will be a surprise for him. If I get it, he's going to be so happy. Um, if I don't, I'll never have to like deal with him being sad. I didn't get, didn't get it. She gets Friday Night Lights. She goes to tell Sean, discovers Sean has been cheating on her for a long, long time. Literally the next day. I mean, this is a magical, beautiful moment. Friday Night Lights is like, hey, here's a ton of money for you to move to Austin. Is that any trouble for you? And she's like, no, I actually packed my whole life to leave my cheating boyfriend. The U-Haul is outside. I'll just drive it to Austin. <laughs> Yeah. And she drives it to Austin and works on Friday Night Lights and and gets money for the first time and like obviously blows up into a big star. She's only been in commercials. Yeah. And and to this point. And also, I think key to this is that she had to play a high schooler and Minka is extremely thin and childlike. She can like play this role as a high school girlfriend. 
I did you watch Friday Night Lights? No. I didn't either. And I know everyone who watches it, like, loves it, loves it. I can't tell if you watch Friday Nights if you'd love these chapters, but I feel like you wouldn't. I didn't feel like we got Yeah. And she she talks about how Peter Berg asks her and Taylor Kitsch to meet him one morning for breakfast. Peter Berg is the showrunner who created Friday Night Lights. She said, Taylor and I had woken up together that morning, but for the sake of appearances, we decided to arrive at the restaurant at different times, very pointedly, not together. Pete summoned us there to give us a warning. He could see the chemistry between us. Looking back now, I'm pretty sure everyone could, even though we thought we were slick. At breakfast, he basically said, don't fucking do it. It's not a good idea, and it always ends badly. We kept our faces straight and nodded. Okay, yes, whatever you say. He didn't know that he was too late. Or he at least pretended he didn't. Later, Pete said he knew exactly what was going on. He also said, we knew we wouldn't heed his warnings, but he had to try. And this is basically she gets into a relationship with Taylor, who is like, you know, the other star in the show who plays Tim Riggins. And the relationship is wildly intense and toxic and up and down. And you don't really understand what happened because it's written about so vaguely. Yeah, I mean, I think what's sad is she kind of goes into it like, okay, into shooting the whole show as a chance for her to kind of like live a fantasy of high school that she didn't have and like do over and again, find family and thinks like, this is going to be like summer camp. We're all going to have a great time together. And then because of their relationship, she ends up being kind of like isolated from everyone else. And it just becomes like not what she hoped for at all. Yeah. And I I found it really interesting where she gave us some clues where she said, like, I can be a little messy when my heart has been broken. All the Mm -hmm. effort I might have invested in connecting consistently with the girls on the show went to Taylor. So when my relationship with Taylor became toxic, I had no one to turn to. She said, vulnerability begets connection and her tough guy approach only left me alone. She, I can't tell if she's being hard on herself or if she's hinting that she was like kind of shitty to the other girls and toxic herself and cold and uncaring and everyone probably walked around being like Minka's awful. Like, and you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like she's giving yeah. us clues towards that, but I like can't tell and, and that it came from a hurt place. Yeah, I found it really interesting what she says about how she approached acting at that time, too, where she was just, like, this raw nerve, and the way she did it was by, like, keeping herself in the emotion. A hundred percent. I love that you caught that. Well, then her mom, who she's estranged from, keeps contacting her over and over and over again until finally she picks up, and her mom tells her that she has cancer, and she has six months. And Rick... Good advice says, Minka, you have to get a therapist. This is going to be your last chance to heal things with your mom. And then, unfortunately, Minka seems to find mm, the worst therapist in the world. In the world. Which is like, it makes me so fucking sad that like bad therapists can exist because it is like the best healing tool and help. And yet you still have to be careful not to get a bad one. And I can think of two people who I thought were terrible people who became therapists. And they're just out there being therapists. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this really reminded me of like, damn, you have to be careful. Yeah. When you have not, I was lucky that the first therapist that I had was like a very 
respectable therapist. So later when I wasn't having that experience, I knew what to do. But if you think about that, most people, by the time they go to therapy, they are like beyond, beyond the time that like they had something that hurt them that they needed to deal with. Yeah. And they're like, okay, I'll try this thing. And And it's so hard to get there. Yeah. Like, you, yes. I finally made the call. I finally did the intake. I finally got my insurance or I finally got the money or I finally got found the payment plan. Like it's so hard to even get there and sit down. Yes. And then the person is like completely horrible and you're like, I guess this is what therapy is. Never mind. Yeah. Or I guess this is what therapy is. I'll listen to you because you're a therapist and I'm not, which is what Minka did. I mean, so her mom has like six months. So it sounds like within a, a month of therapy, which is just like way too fucking soon to do this. The therapist goes, your mother didn't love you. Mm-hmm. Why would she be ready to hear that at month in? I'm not a therapist. I know this is too fast. Yeah. And she freaks out. She's like, what do you mean? The therapist is like, your mom didn't love you. And it's like, well, that can be said in a different way. And her mm-hmm. therapist is trying to show her that maybe that parenting was bad, but does it in a horrible way. And then convinces her she needs to write a letter telling her mom what a bad do- job she did in detail. And she needs to read it to her before her mom dies. And so- Minka, she goes, I sat on the edge of her bed and followed my script. I've been seeing a therapist and there's some things I need to say. Mom listened. You are a really bad mom, I said, reading her the litany of the hurts she'd inflicted on me. Here's where you put me in danger. And I almost died several times because of your negligence. I was about halfway done with my list when her entire being quite literally crumpled right in front of me. Her shoulders dropped forward. Her head as low as her neck would allow, using up whatever precious reserves she still had left within her. I don't even know if she heard the rest of what I said after you were a really bad mom. I hope she hadn't because just that was enough. And then later she writes, seeing her break like that, I snapped out of my trance and saw this poor woman for who she really was. She tried. She was a woman who had been held in place by the societal norms she grew up with, who had learned to use her looks as her only source of currency. She hadn't had any good role models, no guidance. She'd never gotten a break. She'd had a hard job to do as a single mother with no real skills to speak of. And she did the best she could with what she had. And She said, more than anything, she loved me in perhaps her very own flawed way, but loved me with every fiber. And then at the end of the chapter, she said, we'd already been well along that journey before my therapist made that suggestion, organically moving toward a full reconciliation. My therapist may have meant well, but her advice was corrosive. I never went back to see that therapist again. And that day with my mom is one of the most painful memories of my entire life. Yeah. Minka did the best therapy herself, which is realizing that like her mom did the best she could because her mom was also traumatized in all the ways Minka was and good just wasn't enough. Right. What I wish her therapist would have done with her is like allow her to experience that list and like... By herself with a therapist. Yes. Yes. Because you can't undo that. Like whether or not you want to move forward in the relationship with that person, that's not the same as you sorting through like your own experience of what that was like for you, which you don't need the other person present for. That's such, listen, listen to you being a better therapist than Minka's therapist. Yes, I, it was just so crazy. And then this is where the book, I think for both of us started to like unravel a bit because then she talks about how her mom's favorite holiday was Thanksgiving and she had Thanksgiving off from Friday mm-hmm. Night Lights, but she refused to go home for Thanksgiving. And she's just talking about how bad she feels that she literally spent Thanksgiving alone in Austin rather than go home and spend it with her mom who was dying. And she's like, I wish I would have handled it better. And it's like, a therapist just told you to sit on the edge of her bed and like tell her what a horrible mom she is and you've never experienced it yourself. And like, of course you cannot figure out why you don't fly home for Thanksgiving, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, the narrative becomes really complicated for me here because she's on one hand, she says, we were like doing so much better now. I had forgiven my mom. Like it's all wrapped in a bow. And she's like, I was avoiding and denying the fact that my mom was so sick because I couldn't handle it. And she was a really great mom. And now I just want to like talk about that too. Yeah, and which it's, is, it's so tough because it's like, I do get the need to be like, let's talk about the good things now. And like, especially like her mom's dying, how painful that is. But like, it's all, it feels like weird waves that aren't like matching up, right? Like, in Yeah, the it didn't, I didn't feel like the truth of it in the same way that I did earlier on. Yeah, I, I yeah, I totally agree. A lot happens as her mom is, is dying and it's like, really heartbreaking. And when she dies, her mom has told her, I've been building this treasure chest for you filled with like special things that I've wanted to leave you. And Minka finally one day is ready to, after her mom has passed, she's like, I'm going to open this physical treasure chest that my mom filled with stuff for me to have forever. And when she opens it, it was socks a ton of socks. And she said, that was my entire inheritance. Not even perfectly matched, rolled into tidy little ball socks, just cozy socks, the kind you'd use to stay warm when you didn't care about how you looked. Her mom's friend says she must have lost track of what she had planned to do in her defense. But she didn't need to be defended. She left me comfort and warmth. She may have meant to do otherwise, but she left me with about 40 pairs of simple cotton socks to remember her by, plus her journal. Her writing definitely meant more than me than anything she could have put in that treasure chest, not to mention she'd made me laugh. I'd take it. I needed that laugh. Man, this whole thing really bums me out. I know. But the fact that she got her mom's journal, that's got to be one of the most special. At least she has the journal. Really? Yeah. I don't feel that way about it. Tell me. I feel like the journal is one last, like, emotional dump from her mom. But in a world where they never actually got to process by the time they were ready to process, her mom was dying and her mom was like mentally, you know, not fully mm-hmm. there. In a world where that's never going to happen, she has all this emotional stuff to take with her into her adulthood should she choose to like look into it. Man, no. I don't like it at all. <laughs> really? No. I feel like it's just because also she tells us that her mom started keeping the journal, which is written as letters to her during the time they were estranged. And we know that her mom has a really toxic relationship dynamics where she's used to this kind of like push-pull. Yeah. And so to me, it's just like another place where she's saying like, here's how like I'm good. Interesting. I Yeah. I, listen, I think what you're saying is fully valid, but in the world where I get to choose journal or no journal, I'm like, yeah. give me that journal. Because even though it is written like, Minka, why won't you talk to me? You're the best daughter I've ever had. At least that's like information and data and words from your mom to have and to hold versus like just the socks. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I'm going mean, to be able to do more work in therapy with that journal than I am going to be able to do with the socks. That is true. Okay. What's nuts is that after this, we've gone through all of this. Then we have our psychic moment in the book where a medium is like, every time you see a bird, it's your mom saying hello. And her mom loved flamingos, which also like really on visual themes here for what's in the book. I love it. I love the flamingos also. Yeah. And she starts seeing flamingos everywhere. And then after that, we have a whole Harvey Weinstein story. I was like, I can't do this. 
I felt like the Harvey Weinstein story had no place here. It It's interesting because it's like in a world where we are outing Harvey Weinstein, you know, Paris Hilton writes about him, like um, other people who had already published their memoirs came back to be like Ashley Judd. Like he wasn't in the first one, but then she told the story like it's we should be doing this. But like I wasn't ready book structure wise. Yes. And thankfully, Minka fully does not fall for his shit. Like, he's, like, coming to my hotel room. She says, reschedule with a female assistant present at a restaurant. Yeah. She shows up. He sends the assistant away. She's, like, get the fuck away from me. He's, like, come be my girlfriend. I'll give you money. What are you going to do? He's, like, don't tell your agent. She's, like, no problem. First thing she does is tell her agent. Like, it's a, as far as Harvey Weinstein stories go, this is a nice one. Yeah. But, yeah, it was, like, I just, like, wasn't emotionally ready. Yeah. We weren't heading towards it. No. When it came. <laughs> no. And then we go into a story about how she was like on set for something and the director of photography slapped uh, slapped her ass. And at the time she was like, you asshole, ha ha. And then she goes home and she's like, uh-uh, we need justice. And when he gets close, she slaps him across his face as hard as she can. She says, never disrespect me or another woman on set. She calls him up in front of everyone. Yeah, she's when like, they're like about to shoot. Yeah, she's like, everyone come here, and then hits him across the face. Listen, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I loved it. And then when I when I felt like, wow, I love this. The next paragraph is, I decided that hitting him as hard as he hit me made things even. I suppose you can take the girl out of Albuquerque, but you can't take the Albuquerque out of the girl. I was like, that's right, that's right. I probably shouldn't love this. <laughs> <laughs> Then she's like, okay, now I realize, like, I probably should have just reported him. <laughs> but then she goes into a thing that we have to have in the book, which is that she said um, she had made a sex tape with Rudy that he had pushed her into. And she in was high 17. school. In high yeah. school, yeah. She was 17. He pushed her into this. When I first moved into the world of acting, I had concerns and reached out to him. Can you please destroy that tape in any photos? Of course. He sounded so sweet. I'm married now and settled down. I don't want that stuff haunting me either. And he's like, don't worry, it's all destroyed. And then 10 years later, she says, Mink, are you sitting down right now? I didn't think anyone actually said that in real life, but a decade after my conversation with Rudy, those were the words my publicist used. I'm really sorry to ask you this, but is there a chance there's a sex tape of you in the world? Yes, there is. So much for Rudy's heartfelt apology. It's okay, no judgment here, but the person you made that tape with is shopping it right now. It was one of those moments where everything started to move in slow motion, the room throbbing, and my stomach nodded. I was certain I was about to throw up. My whole world seemed about to collapse. The tape I'd made with Rudy was in no way a cute sex tape. This was my child abuse on display. I'd worked so hard to escape the role I found myself trapped in, and now the idea that it could be broadcast to the entire world made me feel like I was going to die. I was a minor, I said. I was a kid. Don't worry, we're going to hire the most powerful entertainment attorney to handle it. And then I think what is... I just have to read what happens. She says, the attorney, the attorney was able to use the music playing in the video to establish my age at the time. Next, he went to Rudy and explained that if you proceed with the sale of the tape, we'd sue him for everything he was worth. Finally, he negotiated with Rudy and we were able to get the tape from him. Rudy signed a release saying he'd turned over every copy. And for that release, I had to pay him $50,000. Yeah, because she doesn't want to make any money off of it, which is what the lawyer first says to her. And she's like disgusted. She's yeah. like, I'm not trying to make a buck. Like, don't offend me. Also, it's child pornography. Yeah. Like, but but it is, I will say, like, this. It, that is, like, the number one option. Because it was given to Pamela Anderson. It was given to Paris Hilton. Like, would you like half the rights to all the profits your sex yeah. about to make? And because it's always against their will and from abuse, they say no. Man, I'm so, honestly, like, I'm just, like, I'm sick of getting emotional on this podcast. But, like, the fact that 
and this is like something I'm personally feeling in my life as well. But like the fact that you can like get to Hollywood and like get money and get power and the most powerful entertainment in the world and still justice when you are a victim looks like paying a man $50,000 not yeah. to um, embarrass you with your own abuse. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying that exact thing happened to me. I'm saying what I can relate to is like, you think there's a, a day right. when like you can somehow earn enough power and respect that you could fight um, a situation like that with justice and win. And the truth is that victims who are women all, I hate, I don't want to like say this, but like, it's just like, you always are fucking losing. You're always lo- like, there's no amount of power you can have <laughs> where like, yeah. if you're a woman who was abused, all the power structures are set up for you to lose. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is like a whole nother subject, but I've just been thinking about this and I was listening to something recently that was talking about our justice system and how it's not for victims at all. Yeah. It's like, even in like the most heinous crimes possible, the best thing that someone can take away is, oh, well, I'm really glad that that person is going to be locked up for a long time. Like in what world does that actually benefit you as someone who was harmed. Uh, it's such a good point. Like even like from divorce court, witnessing that with my mom to like when I had to go to court for my own stuff, like the, the structures are just like set up for you to lose even when you win. Yeah. <laughs> Which I did win and it's still set up for you to lose. Yeah. Yeah, it's really tough. Okay, well then, <laughs> God damn this book. I will say too, like about, I think what you said about the Friday night light section is astute. And for anyone who is reading this, who is like, ooh, I want to know about Minka and like all of her famous boyfriends. Like you're not going to get it. They're not here. Uh, Yeah. Trevor Noah, he ain't in here. Uh, Jesse, what's Jesse's name? Jesse Williams. He's not in here. I mean, I looked up like who the guy is that I think she's talking about, but it's like so sad that I just like don't even care. But she talks about this relationship where she has a miscarriage and the way she handles the pain and the way he handles the pain break them up. Just when she's finally ready emotionally to have the honor of being a mother, she's worried she's out of time. Mm-hmm. And it's like unbearable. And then she loses like this man that she loves because of it. And it's yeah. like, I will say at this point in the book, like it's going so fast. And then, and then we start talking about like ketamine treatments for therapy. And I was like, I'm just not ready for this. I know. <laughs> personally, personally, I'm not ready to like, and then she talks about like how she's the person in control of her life now. And she's trying to heal herself with EMDR therapy. And then she gets another therapist. This is where I was like, am I going to become a lawyer to like persecute therapists and memoirs? Um, (laughs) She gets a therapist who she writes is so much better than the other therapist. You and I both wrote, is he where he says things to her? Like you're dressing like a stripper's daughter. And she's like, what do you mean? And he's like, you're dressing like a stripper's daughter. Like you're trying to like prove that like you're not a stripper like your mom. And like, why not? And he gives her, he's literally like, your pendulum has swung so far. You're trying to prove you're not your mother. He literally gave me homework to wear thigh high boots and a mini skirt, which I never did. That kind of flaunting my body felt way too uncomfortable, but I got his point. The seed had been planted and I was trying to give myself permission to lighten up. This therapist was so much better than the one who had told me to call my mother out in such a horrible way. I'm sorry. Your therapist is... <laughs> it's just so, like, confusing to me. I can hardly even analyze it. Same. It's just Where like, I'm like, what the what? fuck? 
And, and, it's, and then, in like, this is in the epilogue. Like, that therapist is in the epilogue. Like, he is our way out. Like, don't worry, she's with this guy now. I'm like, no, we got to get a different therapist. I found it so confusing thematically, too, because, again, I don't know if it's something she's not telling us that's there the whole time, but it doesn't seem like issues around her body or her appearance are, like, a thing. It came out of nowhere. I don't see her rejecting her mom or herself in that way ever. And then at the very end, it's leaving us in this place of like, oh, and I did heal everything with my mom. Wasn't she great? And oh, yeah, I really did need to work on my relationship with like my sexiness. Yeah, which is interesting because she starts with like, if beauty is my only power, I better learn to use it. But we don't go on that journey. No, because even when she does work in the strip club, it's for six months. And when her time is up, she's set for herself. She gets out and that's the end of it. And it helped. It's like one of the only avenues available in her moment in life for women, which is how fucked up the world is. And she takes it and she gets her own apartment and leaves her abusive relationship. (sighs) Yeah, the book, it was a really tough ending. Um, Yeah, when she tells us, like, all the different types of therapy she's done in the very end, I don't, I don't know. I just wasn't ready. I needed, I need, I just, I don't think I was in a place for it, you know? Okay, well, Molly, we end every podcast with something I call the book dull test. First question, did the author share their truth? Yes. A thousand percent yes. I think she gave us everything she had. Second question, was it entertaining to read? Yes. It was so entertaining. I read it in one sitting. I do have to say, like, I do not consider myself a writing snob at all. When I, I am never the person who's like, well, this is a grammar thing. Like, I, I'm not like that at all. It, the writing was odd at times. It didn't matter because her story was so beautiful, but like it was written a little weirdly in some places. Especially the beginning. When we started, yes. I didn't know like how I was it nervous. was going to go because yeah. there's a lot of redundancy in the beginning and there's uh you flagged it in one place but a uh, wailing on someone is written as in like wailing like when you go to see a whale yeah in a couple spots yeah that being said entertaining as fuck yes. um final question did reading this book elevate your life in any way i mean yes and one big reason why is because there's just like not enough Tales of New Mexico yeah. in like any medium. In any and media. it's just really satisfying. I completely agree. By the way, that is as a TV writer in Hollywood, everything I'm like, it's in New Mexico. We're in New Mexico. We're in New Mexico. Cause it's just like, it's just it's not the Southwest is just like not on screen enough. I will say in in many ways, just watching someone walk through their trauma and share it is probably like one of the most elevating things that can happen to anyone. Just her turning around and sharing this is like so powerful. And then she wrote this, and I love when memoirs do this, where they say, I can give one piece of advice to young ladies reading this. It's this. I love when they tell you, like, here's the one thing. Mm -hmm. It would be to always and consistently invest in your friendships with humility, love, and intention. I'm not always the best at this, but I finally found my circle of women who see me and understand me. They know my heart and show me grace when I need it. As a result, they've inspired me to be the best friend I can possibly be for them too. My sisterhood means the world to me and I cherish them with every fiber in my being. Men will come and they will go, but it is the women in your lives who will always be there. Theme of the podcast. It's the theme of the podcast. (laughs) And it's a hard one. I agree wholeheartedly. And it's a hard one lesson for her because her mom teaches her the opposite. 
Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think it's such a beautiful lesson in this book, too, because you see her spend her whole 20s alienating, like, the women on set and things like that. And then turns it over. Like, it's just just never too late to, like, find new friends and invest in them and, like, become the kind of friend you want to be. Molly, that brings us to our friendship. This book was so good and juicy and amazing. Um, Tell everyone where they can find you and support your work because you are an author yourself and you do such phenomenal work in the world. And I want everyone to come spend time with you. Thanks. You can find me and my projects uh, from my website. It's mollythorntonwrites.com. And you can listen to Moonlight Writers Club, my podcast, or sign up for my newsletter if you want to have a writing buddy on your writing journey. I just love you so much. Thank you for coming on. I love you too. This is so fun. I'm honored. Thank you. 505 forever. Yes. That's all for this week's episode. If you want to see some gems that I'm going to post about this episode, go to my Instagram at Chelsea Vontes. It is also linked in the show notes. We also have a Facebook group, Celebrity Book Club Podcast. That is a space where you can have more conversations. People also talk and have conversations on our Patreon, which you should join. If you join our Patreon, you get one extra bonus episode a month. There's also all kinds of other perks. I know it sounds daunting to sign up, but it's honestly super easy. Again, it's linked in the show notes. You sign up for, for we have a pay what you can option. We have $5 a month option. We send you a link. You just add that to your podcast player and then all the bonus episodes just come to your phone like normal. It's super great. And um, yeah, I'm always on Instagram where you can start conversations in the comments. A huge shout out to our podcast producer, Kate Downey. She's the best. She does everything. And our episode engineer, DJ Bouncy House. Uh, thank you guys so much. And we'll see you soon for another juicy book. <laughs>